Hello, and welcome to TV Saves the World. I'm Ilan. I'm drunk. I'm Priya, and I'm high. And today, we will be talking about class and labor. So today is going to be a slightly different format because we've been switching up how we do prep for this podcast. Initially, we were thinking that we would release, we would record and release every two weeks. And now we're thinking every month because we want to use the other three Thursdays in the month to uh, actually watch the thing so that we can have a shared base of knowledge while we discuss. It's really frustrating when this begins to feel like homework. To assign us homework is to ensure that something <laughs> does not get done. <laughs> so what did we watch this month, Elam? Well, we watched a show that was terrible. Which show was that? That was a show called Incorporated. That was terrible. That was, it was, it was, we will talk about it later. Mm-hmm. And we watched a show that was hilarious which was a sci-fi original show about the far, far future where apocalypse has happened and the cars <laughs> run on human blood. <laughs> Dude, I had a Lexapro dream about blood drive last night, actually. Oh, fuck. Do you know what I dreamed? Instead of dreaming about cars that ate people, yeah. I dreamed about um, orca-shaped submarines that Wait, ate what? people. Wait, <laughs> what? Wait, that's amazing. I have the best dreams on Lexapro. Lexapro is the antidepressant that I'm taking right now. And as far as I can tell, it works solely by giving me, like, super vivid dreams. And then that just makes me really happy throughout the day because it's just really fun to dream at night. <laughs> anyway, I don't remember what I was saying now. Anyway, the point is Blood Drive was great. It was hilarious. Yeah. And... Oh, The Expanse. The Expanse. Yeah. I'm going to talk about labor and class on The Expanse. And uh, how it relates to, like, the history of fashion and uh, class signifiers and tattoos in science fiction. Yeah, so why are we talking about class and labor? We're talking about it because it is an active topic today. Um, here in San Francisco, Tertine Bakery, a very uh, famous source of delicious, delicious bread and pastries, is unionizing, which is really cool. Yay! As of a month ago, Bernie Sanders, a known socialist, was in the lead for the Democratic Party. Woo! Now that Warren has dropped out, we are obligate Bernie supporters. I mean, what else are you going to do? <laughs> also, Google. Oh, yeah. And there was a long article about how there is all sorts of efforts inside of Google to unionize and to sort of deal with how employees used to have power and now don't. And for those who have not been following the Google saga uh, over Thanksgiving, there was what's now come to have been known in the tech industry as the Thanksgiving Day Massacre, um, massacre in quotes, uh, where Google fired four of the lead uh, activists who have been active there against like the James Damore-like parts of the company. So on the forefront of that, you can say, wow, that's amazing. Where are all the labor issues in my science fiction, since here they are in my city and my industry? And when you ask this question, um, the answers you get are usually like, did you know there was an episode of Star Trek where Quark's bar tries to unionize? And then, you know, Quark raises their, wa their wages and it's fine. Or did you know there's an episode of Babylon 5 where there's a dock workers strike? And it's terrible because the dock workers strike. And people don't really talk about the social class and labor issues in sci-fi that has happened since then. 
probably because people who talk about that are very old. Well, I think uh, you were also telling me about how it's just because labor has not been at the forefront of social issues. Yeah, so the other story is that why are those the two examples? Well, um, part of it is that, you know, Eric Flint, for example, pointing this out at Worldcon panels, that sci-fi is a genre for well-off um, nerds, and well-off nerds don't care about unions. But that's kind of a weird statement, because, like, lots of people like Star Wars who are not really well-off nerds. If anything, sci-fi is a populist genre. Mm-hmm. But it's a genre that looks for the future. Mm-hmm. And the last time anybody was really excited about unions was probably the 30s or 60s. Mm-hmm. But in the 60s, I mean, people were not excited about local power structures, yeah. so unions were right out. Um, and then the 70s and 80s saw a return to conservatism. So again, unions are right out. By the time you hit the 90s, unions are basically the villain in everything you do. Yep. Then, you know, the early 2000s happened and the dot-com crash. And now we're discussing other weightier topics like, is it cool to torture people or not, film at 11. And here we are, suddenly seeing a resurgence of labor and class and organizing. Also, crucially, 2008 happened. I hear in 2009, there was um, some sort of massive protest all over the country. Whose streets? Our streets! Woo! Woo! Unfortunately, we were just out of college, and people who are um, in charge of serious shit um, were too old to be there, and they looked at it and they said, well, this didn't go anywhere, and they didn't really see how it could possibly go anywhere, like how in 2016 it would cause a socialist to be the, you know, the second candidate for a presidential election. For those who don't know, we are talking about Occupy Wall Street, which somehow no one ever talks about anymore, even though it was like literally the biggest thing happening at the time that was not the decline of the entire economy. (laughs) And when they talk about it, they're really talking about the French Revolution, because those two are clearly equivalent. But yeah, and the, the things that did talk about her are like, oh my god, there's a populist uprising, and they ignored sort of all the inside dynamics of it, which is like all of the really cool shit we did. And you know, people don't talk about it now, but the terms, the 99% and the 1%, those came from Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, they're really typical now. They're everywhere. They're on like hashtag resist posters. Yeah, I mean, my dad, I was just talking to my dad earlier today, and he was, like, teasing me about, like, being in the 0.1% of, like, people voting for Bernie or something like that. (laughs) And, like, that language, like, that entire discourse came from Occupy Wall Street. Like, it literally did not exist in 2008. Yeah, that was all new. But everyone knows that it was a failure. We don't talk about it. Right, Or if we do talk about it, we talk about how it was an inevitable failure. Yeah. It could never have possibly succeeded. Yeah. It's sort of a weird question because, like, what does success mean? I mean... I mean, it definitely didn't succeed in its goal of changing the narrative and, like, shifting people's perspectives on politics. Like, Bernie Sanders isn't, like, totally winning the... isn't almost winning the nomination right now. I mean, he's really close. He's so close, and hopefully he will win. Priya, but what is your theory? Why do you think we don't talk about labor in science fiction? So my theory is that... We talk about oppression a lot in science mm, fiction. Mm. Um, it's just that, in at least in American science fiction of the past 30 years, that oppression hasn't been economic. It's been, like, speciesist, you know, as a metaphor yeah. for racist, or, you know, it's been colonial um, as... Actually, I wonder if Firefly counts as a class in labor, because, like... You could argue that it does, because they constantly talk about the center being, like, a rich, yeah. like, place. But, like, the sense I always got was that it wasn't class specifically so much it was, as it was colonialism. There's, there's a weird undercurrent of, like, colonialist oppression of the South. 
as yeah. a as a genre. It's it's very Firefly is a series that like when you watch it now like feels very two thousand three. I think because it feels very neoconservative. Or uh, The Hunger Games is another sort of example of that. I mean, it's not a TV show, but... I always thought that the thing The Hunger Games did really well was it married the social conservatism of, like, you know, the Midwest towards, like, coastal, elite coastal liberals yeah. with, like, genuine class warfare. <laughs> That's <laughs> because true. It, it's an it's a situation in which your West Virginian, like, coal miners yeah. can be like, yes, we are literally being oppressed by, like, those elites who dye their hair weird colors and, uh-huh. like, dress in weird clothes and, like, uh-huh. produce all of our entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> And so, like, for economic uh, socialists, it resonated because, like, it had such a clear, like, labor socialist message. And then it also resonated for, like, social, like, conservatives who are like, yeah, those, you know, assholes who live on the coast. Um, what should we, what should we start with? Uh, let's see, our shows are The Expanse or Incorporated or Blood Drive. Yeah, let's start with something good. Hey, let's start with Blood Drive. Blood Drive! They'll never catch me, they'll never catch me. Blood Drive is so amazing. <laughs> oh man! So the plot of Blood Drive is that in the far future, uh, cars run on human blood. Yes, because not just human blood, also human flesh and human hair and bits of human skeleton. It's not clear how the filtering system works. <laughs> That's true. The point is, they, they race down the dystopian human world and they feed people to cars. <laughs> literally, literally, they pick people up and, like, push their head into the car <laughs> and, like, slowly feed in the rest of their body. And it's as gory as you would expect. It's, um, yeah, you know the bad guys are bad because they have raves that are slightly tamer than Burning Man? Except for the car thing, where they feed people to cars. <laughs> don't do that at Burning Man. But otherwise, it's that, that's that's kind of what it is. Um, but it's like a pastiche of, like, grindhouse sort of horror mm-hmm. from, like, the 80s and 90s. And it's sort of interesting to talk about in that sense as sort of representing a lot of those things. Yeah. Although, I don't know that I'm... I'm not too familiar with it. Are you... Have you seen a lot of grindhouse stuff? Uh, occasionally. But you're familiar with all the tropes. I know you are, because we were remarking upon them when we were watching this. I know, it's so weird to me that I'm somehow familiar with all the tropes, even though I don't think I've ever actually seen one of those movies. <laughs> and, and you don't have to, right? But when we sort of talk about the cultural zeitgeist, the tropes you remember are the important part. Yeah, I was just watching the Community episode that parodies oh, yeah. Battle Royale, and like, yeah, like, it works because all the tropes are like identifiably and organically there. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but so like, I guess, you know, the tropes are like, you know... They're good guys, and they're, like, bad guys, and, like, you know, cars that run on human blood, and... One of the interesting sort of class tropes is that everything is run by this evil dystopian corporation. Mm-hmm. Pray, do you remember what it's called? No. Wait, wait, wait. Like, what if I remind you? Okay. It is related to the fact that the cars run on human blood. Heart! It's yes. called heart! You got it! <laughs> yes! <laughs> It's at the heart of everything. Uh, and that's, like, a really popular trope in the sort of, like, movies of that of that sort of genre of, like, oh, there's, like, this one evil corporation that runs everything, and you can't escape them. And it's very 90s in that sense, because, I mean, the 90s brought us, you know, globalization and the protests against the sort of global finance industry. The WTO. Exactly, yeah. And there's no, like, idea that, like, you can 
stop this. No, there's no Elizabeth Warren running for president <laughs> right. in Blood Drive <laughs> promising to break up Heart Corporation. Mm-hmm. That is not a thing that anybody can do. And the best you can do is just like slaughter some goons and retire to an island. And it's this inevitability of like, you, you know, we, we can all see that maybe the system isn't great. It's even nightmarish, but like we can't possibly consider like breaking it down. I think that's one of the things that defines the concept of, like, being overly preachy, right? Is, yeah. like, acting as though the people in the system have no self-awareness of, like, what the output of the system is. Yeah. Because, like, the the interesting thing about us as human beings is that we do know that. Like, we can yeah. act in a way where we can simulate well enough what the effects of our future actions will be collectively to say, no, like, we actually don't want to do that. And, 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 I mean, Grindhouse movies tend to not be too preachy because they're like, yeah... A reasonable human being in this situation will simulate that they should join the blood race to get their $10 million. But, like, why doesn't everyone agree that, like, the blood races are dumb? <laughs> Maybe it makes sense if you model it on, like, the Roman gladiator kind of thing. But I want to point out that Roman gladiators did not do it voluntarily. <laughs> That's true. And I guess then maybe you can argue that, like, the one big corporation is, like, the Roman Empire. Yeah. I mean, they, they run the police. The police are privately owned in this world. But I think it's arguable that when the Roman Empire happened, a lot of the people who became its subjects, like, had never conceived of the idea of empire before, right? Like, they didn't necessarily have a reference book for, like, how to deal with the overreaches. And, like, the system of government that we've reached now is informed by our knowledge of, like, we've tried all these other things in human history, and, like, here were the problems with all of them. And so I feel like that level of self-awareness should also be built in. I guess, as a counterpoint, I would say that, and this is, again, something we see in Blood Drive, um, the protagonists are very um, believable to me because the protagonist is a cop, and he thinks that he's doing a good thing. And occasionally people are like, you know, you work for a private security firm that requires you to knock out a certain number of teeth per week. Like, (laughs) are you sure you're one of the good guys? Literally, their boss goes around with a jar. (laughs) It's so good. And I think it only works because the actor is really good at pulling off, like, the dopiness needed in the character. (laughs) But it works, though. And he's like, oh, but, like, this man was stealing water from the water rations. I mean, if we don't ration the water, we're all gonna die. You're like, okay, yeah, this guy is like, you just convince yourself that what you're doing makes sense. Certainly the point of Blood Drive is to make that commentary that, like, the present is literally just us, like, feeding each other into the meat grinder. Uh, while, like, all these, while these people up in Ivory Towers, like, make off with the profit. Is that our dessert defrosting? Oh, I thought I just heard a pop. I did hear a pop, but I'm concerned. Yeah, so, um, yeah, because it's a weird sort of funhouse mirror. But I guess popularity of that genre peaked at a time when people were sort of, like, realizing, oh, these things are bad, but not, like, and we should fix them. Or that we can yeah. fix them. Yeah. That we have the tools to fix them. Movies. Although, Blood Drive was actually made in 2018. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think part of it really is just it's been happening for so long now that it's just boring. Yeah. Like, it's just a boring trope. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then the joy of Blood Drive is that it's exactly what you think it is, and it is yeah. so cheerful about it, and it packs so much into such a small amount of time. <laughs> like It packs a lot of blood into one episode. Like <laughs> Just be warned. That it's really out there. If you want to see uh, rapists fed to a car, 
potential <laughs> rapists. Um, yeah, yeah, you got it. If you yep. wanna, if you wanna see a lot of other exciting things that are probably exactly what you're thinking of, it's there. <laughs> Some of them will be a little bit more like intense than you're thinking of. Also, <laughs> we're not feeding people to cars here, people. It's not, <laughs> but but not subtle. It does involve feeding people to cars, and when yeah. you meet it at that level, it's great. It's very good at feeding people into cars. Yeah. And we've only actually seen the first episode. I tried to watch the second episode, and I got halfway in, and I was like, "This is enough blood for me." <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can watch that show sober. Yeah. But the outfits are great. Yes, and the outfits are great. And the lead is very dopey, and his love interest is... Um, she's hot. She's pretty... Yeah, she's hot, and she's kind of you know, I like her. Honestly, yeah. if I met her, I would like her. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd rather watch a show about her than him, honestly. She's yeah. much more interesting character. Yeah, 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 for sure. All right. We are done with this segment. We will be back with more. Stay Yay! tuned. delicious uh chocolate cream pie thing which is great and it is time to discuss our second uh show of the month incorporated So a friend uh, found me incorporated when I asked her for recommendations of things involving labor and capitalism and social class. And she had never watched it, but she like found it online and we thought we'd watch it and see if it was any good. Priya, was it any good? It was not. <laughs> it was not good. How would, you, how would you describe the plot of what we watched of incorporated? Extremely boring. That's fair. That's, that's a good summary. Um, also very stereotypical. Again, like we were saying, this trope is boring, and it turns out Incorporated was from 2016, so it was made before Blood Drive, and yet it is even more boring. Yeah, well, I mean, Blood Drive was clearly a delight to make. Nobody was sitting there going, we're making an important show about blood-eating cars. <laughs> this will be the new Game of Thrones. <laughs> the part of Incorporated is that in the future... There is a terrible dystopia, but if you work for a fancy corporation, you live in a green zone, and then your life is good, and then you have to climb the corporate ladder to the top, mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. There are floors. You know what this reminds me of is that Locke Lamora book where they like try to cheat their way up the Sin Spire. Oh yeah, but that was a better book. Yes, that was much better than, than this show. Yeah, it also reminds me of this Russian uh, sci-fi novel where... The protagonist has to cheat his way through levels of doom because there is like a space alien slash AI trapped in the last level of doom. Uh-huh. And it's in virtual reality, and so like doom is really scary. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> that was also a much better novel. Okay, yeah. Th these all sound like way better than what Incorporated actually is. Yeah. And so we thought it'd be interesting to talk about it. 
because it highlights literally every fucking terrible thing about um, social class and dystopia in science fiction. Where should we start? Let's see. So, all right. So major spoilers for the pilot, but only the pilot because we haven't watched the rest of the season. Also, it's really bad. So, like, I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, it's okay. Don't watch it. Just listen to us talk. Yeah. (laughs) You, You won't need to watch it after this. So Incorporated is about this guy who we learn over the course of the pilot grew up in a red zone, which is one of these places that's completely, like, it's so citified, it's, like, dead, like, you can't grow anything, it's all just, like, you know, urban decay, basically, slash, like, sex clubs where people from the rich green zones come and party. And fight clubs. It's, it's important that we have fight clubs because that's how we, we denote that they're bad. Yeah. So this guy grew up there. As, so over the course of the pilot, you find out this guy grew up there, but now he's in a green zone, and he's part of the corporation that's clearly, like, running the whole show. And he is apparently some kind of spy who's trying to rise in the ranks because he's looking for this mysterious girl. Yeah, and then um, there's a subplot where, of course, he has a wife, because it's, like, very stereotypical. And his wife is the daughter of one of the high-ranking execs. Really, the most promising part about this pilot is the idea that his wife has an ex from the Red Zone that she's, like, probably not over, and he has an ex from the Red Zone that he's not over, but they're just lying to each other. Yeah, that's the only thing that makes it bearable, because another thing that they learn right at the beginning is that they have just gotten a permit to procreate. And the wife is very excited about it, obviously. Yeah, and the guy is like, well, I'm a spy, but okay, I guess I'll be excited about it. <laughs> I mean, probably it's his only chance to, like, actually have a kid. I don't know. I kind of assume people in red zones just have kids. Otherwise, where would, like, all the people in red zones come from? Slash, why wouldn't they have an uprising? I guess, maybe. I mean, maybe it's something where, like, the permits are... I guess we just don't know. Since we didn't actually watch the rest of this, we have no idea, like, how ingrained this permit system is in their culture. Yeah, I kind of assumed that was just, like, because it comes from the corporation. So I kind of assumed it was a corporation thing. Like, if you have a kid, we'll, we'll sponsor their health insurance. Oh. Yeah, maybe. I have no idea. Yeah, who knows? So the show's really boring and tiresome. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, also, the other plot is that the wife is a plastic surgeon, and she has to give plastic surgery to someone clearly without his, like, actual genuine consent. In that it's clearly economically forced, because this rich woman is like, oh, he's willing to be my sex toy, basically, uh, in exchange for me sponsoring him. And so it doesn't matter if he even consents or not, because, like, it doesn't matter what he wants his face to look like. Like, he he cares more about, like, you know, eating than, like, what his face looks like. And, like, that's true. We would all care more about that if we were put in that position, but we should never be put in that position. I guess one of the reasons why Priya brings it up, and one of the things interesting, is that it's very frustrating to watch that that scene because it doesn't really capture the way that everyone in that situation would actually interact. Like, we're told that the world has been this way for, like, you know, 100 years, but everyone's, like, really surprised. Yeah, that's another, like, big failure, I think, both in Blood Drive. I mean, in Blood Drive, it, again, it only works because, like, the actor is so good <laughs> at being, like, I am a big, blonde, like, guy who does not know what is happening. <laughs> Also, I mean, you know, cars are genuinely weird. Yeah, yeah. For all for all either of us knows, feeding a person into a car is actually how it's operated. Yeah, I don't know how to drive. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, and I guess you can argue oil is like 
you know, petrified forests or whatever. No, there's an Iraqi joke, war joke in here, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> but in, um, in Incorporated, they, they, like, she's just confused that this, that this would happen. Often the show wants to have, like, a quote-unquote relatable character, hmm. um, meaning relatable in the sense that the audience can use them as a viewpoint, and so they can ask the questions that the audience is wondering at the time, like, oh my god, like, have you noticed that this guy is not consenting? And, you know, it forces them to explain, yes, like, this is, like, a, a thing that's taken for granted in our world. But you could show that instead of telling it, because, like, at some point it, it becomes more relatable to like to have a protagonist who's like yeah yeah all right whatever like you know I, I get cases like this under the table every day um and like that actually does more to show like how ingrained it is and how like you know ubiquitous it is one of the weird things about the show is that and it is i think very typical in a lot of shows um about dystopias and it specifically touches on social class is that uh people's behavior um changes when they sort of when the class structure changes and you're like, have these people ever talked to a human being outside of the American middle class? I mean, clearly no. Like, if you show up somewhere in a suit, the way you threaten people is not by saying, I punched someone today. Right. A, that's just, like, not much of a threat. B, like, th- these people have clearly, by, you know, the assumption of being a bouncer at this high, you know, security building, not afraid of you punching them, you scrawny little person. The important part here is that you're wearing a suit and you have money and you come from all of these things with power, and that's what you really have to threaten with. So why are you threatening with by being like, I punched someone today, and they're like, oh, you're scary, I guess we'll let you in. Yeah. It doesn't work like that at all. So when the protagonist is shocked by this, it doesn't look like, oh, this is, this is, you know, relatable. Because it's not relatable. Yeah. It's just poor writing. Yeah. Relatable is to be like, man, I'm part of a fucked up system, uh... I don't know what to do about it. Like, there's more to us that's relatable than just, like, the aesthetics of, of a certain kind of reaction. One of the things that I've been kind of observing in in um, in media that has this, like, quote-unquote relatable character is that, like, it's boring. Right? Like, there's so many other options, like, to focus on in this world, and you chose this one. You just don't want to know more about this character. You already know everything you need to know about them, which is that they're completely unreasonable in the context of this world yeah but also they don't do anything i mean you know this woman is like yeah i'm a plastic surgeon and my mom is super powerful and it you know i'm suddenly surprised shocked at the gambling at this establishment but not so shocked as to do anything all right cool i think let's let's talk this segment out and then we'll yeah take a break to make sure this thing is still recording and then we'll come back and we'll ramble about yeah yeah and we're back we are now talking about the expanse
I love the expense. I love the social perspective of the expense. I love I love that everyone has accents. I have an accent, so it makes me feel understood. Okay, so I want to talk about fashion. Uh-huh. And I highlight the expense here because there's a trend now. How do we say when somebody in a TV show is lower class? Well, we're going to give them some class signifiers that we think signify something something bad, which is face tattoos. Ah, uh, yes. You can't unsee it now. Like, after this, every show you watch, you're yes. going to be like... You know that you know that they are in the in the red zone because they have face tattoos. Yep, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Fuck, I am seeing that now. I also think there's like this weirdly colonialist like like shade to that too. Yeah. In that like face tattoos are strongly identified like with indigenous peoples. Yeah. And so it kind of represents this like lower class and also like other in this way. There was famously like a rapper that turned out to have like a fake tattoo on his face. What? I did not hear about this. They they eventually realized that it was a fake tattoo and he was just like reapply oh like maybe a podcaster like not a podcaster but like a YouTube star or something. Wow. And he was just like reapplying it every time. Oh oh maybe I did hear about this yeah. lately. Okay. Because like it's such it's such a hip thing to do. Partly because, well, it marks you down that way, so it takes a lot of guts to do that, and so therefore it's hip. Right. But also, because it's a hip thing to do, if you're like, we want a character on our show who's lower class, but we still want the audience to like them, we don't want the audience to be like, ugh, fuck that guy, we're gonna give them face tattoos. And so um, the belters in um, the expense are all um, distinguished by their face tattoos. And it's, it's, it's actually even more funny because... Um, the Belter characters that are clearly meant to be more close to the audience have fewer of them mm-hmm. until you're like, you actually can't tell that Naomi is a Belter, but okay, that's part yeah. of her character. But then, like, in the fourth season, there's, like, you know, some Belter um, colonists, and you're like, we, you know, this woman is clearly meant to be a hardcore Belter, but she has, like, a line on her cheek. It's, like, uh, really subtle. That's really interesting. I-, I think I had noticed that, but I hadn't, like, noticed, noticed it. And now that you pointed out, yeah, that's totally true. And it is really weird. Like, honestly, I would prefer for Naomi to have a huge face tattoo. Well, yeah, I mean, that would, that would make sense, but... It would make sense with her personality and, like, her politics. Also, it would look fucking awesome. And it would fill the goal of her being obviously a belter to anybody in that universe. Yeah. Which I think she's supposed to be, even though, as a viewer, like, coming in in season two, it took me a while to find that out. Well, I think also by season two, she's, like... Like, a whole bunch of stuff happens. So you missed Jared, Jared Harris in season one. Uh, was he the boring detective? No. He was the awesome, um, like, leader of the resistance. Oh, yeah, no, I caught, like, the beginning of him showing up. Oh, man, he's so cool. Also, I just think it's amazing that Jared Harris is in this show. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, like, Jared Harris is such a, like, distinguished actor. Which is not to say that sci-fi doesn't deserve to have prestige actors. Right, right, right. Just that, like, it's really not that common. It, and, and the expense in particular is much better once you realize it's kind of a trashy show. It's not like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, I, I first got really bored watching it because I thought it was, like, a prestige show where you, like, deeply care about the characters. Like, Battlestar Galactica was, like genuinely prestige yeah, yeah the expanse is like trying to be prestige but it doesn't actually know how to do that the expanse is much better once you understand that the characters are just pawns that are moving into place right and you're like watching the pawns move and you're watching the world progress and the point of these characters is not that like you care about bobby but that you're like yes this is the lens through which we will see what's happening on mars this season to be honest bobby is one of my favorite characters oh <laughs> She doesn't have any face tattoos and doesn't have a cool accent, so I don't like her. She has an Australian accent. Does she? Yeah. Oh, shit. I didn't even notice compared to everyone else. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, she has an Australian, has like a pretty thick Australian accent. Oh, man. <laughs> but she doesn't have face tattoos because she's from Mars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I don't care about her. Um, yeah, I like the belters. Um, and they all have weird accents, which I appreciate. I do really like that, like, um, the initial author took the time to come up with, like, a belter creole. Yeah. Which Jared Harrod speaks a little bit. Oh, sweet. In his introduction, yeah. It's, it's interesting because um, I think the show and the book, to some degree, try to... Um, take the tack of saying uh, we can tell social classes apart in this world like we can tell you know the belters who are sort of considered to be lower class by this world um, from like Martians from people who live on Mars not space aliens to be clear Mm -hmm. from like people on Earth but um, but on the other hand um, also come up with a world that's really diverse Mm-hmm. like racially and so it's not like oh you know the belters are brown or whatever so it like always is trying to straddle that line where you're like well I actually can't tell when someone's from Mars versus someone's from Earth because as long as they're wearing the same clothing they do look exactly identical yeah and at least the belters have a sort of a distinguishing characteristic it does feel kind of post-racist in that sense yeah like it's taken it's kind of it's it's weird it's almost like it takes the the idea of like racial oppression or like geographical right. oppression and to like transmute it into like labor yeah um and it does have that because a lot of it is sort of labor-based you know the belters do a lot of mining work and all of it is sort of profits go to everyone else and there's a lot of i guess you could almost say labor organizing around that even though the opa get labeled as terrorists for some reason but they're clearly in the right they seem like they have their shit together honestly like yeah <laughs> unlike holden and crew <laughs> exactly which is which is sort of a weird i guess uh through line in sci-fi right you're like yeah the lower classes are having some uprisings that is totally justified but the people doing it are bad if you're yeah. like you know if you ask the, the you know the author of the expense you know do the belters have a point he'd be like totally then you're like are the opa the good guys would be like no people have this, like, pathological need to be able to, like, do both sides rhetoric. Mm. And so people are like, yes, we... The most important thing to show with, like, leftist movements is that there's bad ways to do it. And you're like, okay, I... We got... We've got it. There's bad ways to do it. But also it's worth doing well. Right. But you don't... You don't see that, right? Like, you see the OPA and you're like, well, they're they're bad because they're terrorists. Yeah. Or they're bad because they're incompetent, which the OPA is not, but that's a common trope, right? Right. Haha, they're organizing some workers, but like are there competent belter organizers in this in this show? I I, I might have skipped some seasons. Uh I mean I think Jared Harris's character is supposed oh. to be like the competent organizer. I forget what his name is now. Well what what does he do? Well he's competent? like kind of the he's kind of this like almost religious figure when he comes in. Oh. Like he's like this mythical leader who's like inspired I think he's the leader of the OPA, so he like helped inspire like the the whole movement yeah. and uh, you know, like, when he speaks, everyone listens. I wonder if that's if that's also a really common thing. When you do see competent um, organizing in science fiction, how often is it sort of around religion? Yeah, it often takes on a religious tone because it's often inspired by, like, one, like, very charismatic, like, person who, like, like, like the yeah. who personally connects with everybody. Yeah. Because that's just more cinematic. Like, it's just more economical to film. Or is it that... We're just sort of really used to the idea of like you know, um, let's say a reverend leading uh, a mass uh, a mass movement in the sixties, <laughs> or um, or some guy being like really against like money lenders and debt and then getting crucified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is funny because I grew up with a lot of 
sort of science fictional labor stories because I grew up reading a lot of stuff written in the Soviet Union and um, in the Soviet Union it may surprise you to know that the go-to sort of mythical plotline was um, about, you know, uh, good communists overthrowing bad capitalists. In various locations, like the moon and um, a secret fantasy city at the bottom of a lake, uh-huh. and I think the moon again, a faraway planet, There's, there's, it was just sort of a common refrain, but didn't have as much religious overtone because it was an atheist country. Oh. And so I never really noticed the degree to which in the U.S. discussion of it, it often ends up sort of connecting back to religion. My theory of it is that the West has forgotten that it's possible to have a communistic enterprise that doesn't fail. The only bulwark you have against, like, rampant, unchecked, like, terrible capitalism in the way that, like, slavery yeah. was terrible is to have this religiously fanatical feeling of, like, no, that's just wrong. I just can't do that. And then the only way you can sort of ever imagine people moving towards organizing is because they're prompted by a religious feeling and yeah. a religious revelation of the leader, whether it's Anderson Doe's or, you know, someone else. And actually, I'm very excited that I get to say this. I've recently been reading the book Braiding Sweetgrass um, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is an, an enrolled citizen of the Potawatomi Nation Ooh. and also a professor of botany or, like, eco-ecology, maybe. I think at SUNY. And so I've been reading this book, and it's just, like, mind-blowing how different the native creation myths are. And it's kind of mind-blowing, like, what a difference in tone it kind of gives like, if you think about Christianity, it starts right. with being thrown out of Eden. Like, no one ever says it wasn't God's right to throw Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? Like, everyone accepts it was God's garden, and he had the right to, and he created Adam and Eve, therefore he had the right to do with them whatever he wanted. And that's actually not a concept that, like, makes sense with, like, the native creation myth, for example. I guess, you know, coming back to the expanse to round it up. The good thing about it is that it does deal with all these issues even more and more as time goes on, which conveniently is nice because it is also the, um, the only show on our list that hasn't been cancelled <laughs> um, and that is still ongoing. And it's really exciting to see that because um, with all these unionization movements going, with all this new awareness of economic justice, um, yeah, it would be good to see more of that. I think the tagline of our podcast is, we watch weird science fiction shows so that you don't have to. It's true. <laughs> That's our function in life. We've accepted it. <laughs> we are we're like the trash dispenser for bad television. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, Elin, what do we have coming up next? I don't know. What do we have coming up next, Priya? TBD. Wow, I love TBD. It's a great concept. <laughs> we need to see more of it in science fiction. And here we will tell you why and examples of it being done badly over the last three years. <laughs> we'll see you next time.